Pan American Boeing 707 explodes over Maryland. What causes this aircraft to explode while on approach? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hi. Hello. And we're allowed to leave our houses again. Sort of. Yeah. Well, kind of. Not really. <laughs> I mean, more than we could before. Like, Every- I, I don't feel bad coming over here anymore. Everything's still closed. For and, the most part. And the counties are still doing, like, less restrictive stay-at-homes. But, anywho. Moving on for today. Yeah. What are we doing today? So today we're doing something a little different. Ooh, I like different. So we're doing... Pan American Flight 214. It's so weird when you say Pan American. I know, Pan American. <laughs> Pan Am. Pan Am. Yeah, Pan, Pan Am 214. This took place on December 8th of 1963. It was a Boeing 707-100 with the tail number November 709 Papa Alpha. The captain for the flight was George F. Nuth. I don't know. K-N-U-T-H. Nuth. 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 It wanted okay. to autocorrect to Newt, so... Newt. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just K-N-U-T-E, not K-N-U-T-H. So, I understand why. He was 45 years old. He had 17,049 hours total, of which 2,890 were on the 707. Hot dang. He was an experienced pilot. Yeah. The first officer was John R. Dale. He was 48 years old. He had 13,963 hours total, of which 2,681 hours were on the 707. So, he was also very experienced, yet he was still a first officer. Which I still kind of question. Yes. I feel at some point I would get frustrated and be like, why am I not a captain yet? Yeah, right. There has to be like certain checks you have to pass and stuff to be captain. He may have decided not to be yet. And that's his own. Okay, whatever. Whatever. He's still getting hours. That's fair. Now for the fun part. The second officer was Paul L. Oranger. He was 42 years old. He had 10,008 hours total, of which 2,808 hours were on the 707. So also very experienced. He's the flight engineer, right? He is not. False. Because, Wait, what? Because the flight engineer is John R. Cantelhenner. Wait, why did they add a first and a second officer I know. and a flight engineer? So I'm pretty sure in this case, the second officer is the navigator. What? And the flight engineer is purely for systems monitoring. So you have, you have your pilot flying, pilot monitoring, a navigator, and a flight engineer monitoring systems. I, I don't know. That, I that know. That seems like an over-delegation of tasks, but... I know, but... I feel like that's unnecessary, but whatever. Yeah. Anywho. So the flight engineer was, like I said, John R. Kentelliner. They do not have his age, which was interesting. Uh, but he had 6,066 hours total, of which 76 hours were on the 707. So he was the least experienced on the airplane... But he was pretty experienced as it was at 6,066 hours. But everybody above him had over 10,000 hours, which is pretty impressive. That is quite the experienced crew. Yeah, no kidding. So this was a regularly scheduled flight from San Juan in Puerto Rico to Baltimore and then on to Philly. Which is a super short flight. Yeah, Baltimore to Philly is a really short flight. We took a bus trip from Philly to Baltimore. Yes. And And it took a couple hours, so by plane it would be... Significantly less. Yes, it takes next to nothing. I was looking today at what the average flight time is of the little commuter airplanes that do it these days, and when I looked, it looked about between twenty and twenty-five minutes. Very, and very they were small. having and they were having a seven oh seven do it. Yeah. Now, granted, that's because it was moving. I know it was going from San Juan to Philly, and it just stopped intermediately in Baltimore. But still, basically to get people to the D.C. area seems quasi ridiculous. 
Sure. But also it's like, I mean, you, you arrive into Philly and they're like, oh, I got to cross three states to get home. It's it takes really two hours. Yeah, it's really two hours away. But, you know, that, you know, when the, in the Northeast, they can also say things like three states just to get home from here. And so, you know, so Pan Am likes to be nice to their passengers and they're like, ah, eh, we'll just drop you in Baltimore. And then I we'll guess go to that's Philly. true. That's, that's nice of them. So, but also stop complaining. I know. Most people in the Northeast are like, yeah, I drove a few hours and I'm in a new state. And we're like, I drove a few hours and I'm still in Colorado. Yep. Yep. You can drive over six hours and still be in Colorado, depending on which way you go. Right, right. All right. So first thing in the morning, it did the reverse route. So it went from Philly to Baltimore to San Juan. In doing so, first thing in the morning at Philadelphia... It was fueled with Jet A, and upon arrival in San Juan early in the afternoon, the airplane, uh, it contained 25,500 pounds of Jet A, and then it was fueled with Jet B fuel to a total of 78,000 pounds of fuel on board. Is there a problem with mixing fuel? There was not, actually. This was pretty common practice at the time, and it was really not seen as an issue at all. There were two different types of fuel, but both would burn in the airplane just the same, the and they, same were, amount, yeah. they were possible to be mixed. They weren't... They weren't that different. One's made of kerosene. The other one is a mix. But it's all the same. They uh, they both operate the airplane. So prior to departure from San Juan, the captain was briefed on the weather conditions to expect in flight, which included the possibility of thunderstorm activity and turbulence. The timing of the storms passing over cities like Philadelphia and Baltimore were also discussed. Which, by the way, I think is interesting that it's thunderstorms given the month of this happened. Yeah, December. Yeah. I would think it would be snow. I know, but no, in this case, they're actually talking thunderstorms. Interesting. It departed San... Remind, sorry. So, nope, nope, go ahead. I might have missed this earlier. Remind me what year this was in. This was in 63. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. I just, I couldn't remember what you said before, so... Yep, yep. Just wanted to clarify. I get it. The flight departed San Juan at 4.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with 140 passengers and eight crew on board. The flight to Baltimore was carried out normally and the airplane was refueled at Baltimore. Uh, it arrived in Baltimore at 7.35 p.m., or where 67 passengers were to be dropped off. The remaining 73 passengers were to carry on with the eight crew members to Philadelphia. Like I said, the airplane was refueled in Baltimore, as reports of thunderstorms moving toward Philadelphia were mounting. Uh, 27,400 pounds of Jet A were added to the Jet B fuel that was added in San Juan. An examination of the airplane by a mechanic was carried out at Baltimore, while the airplane was being refueled, but no discrepancies were found by the mechanic, and nothing had been reported by the pilots. During their time in Baltimore, a Pan Am operations rep spoke with the captain about the weather between Baltimore and Philly. He informed the captain that the front of thunderstorms had passed through Baltimore a while ago, and were headed for Philly, expected around 8.25 p.m. At 8.24 p.m., the flight departed Baltimore for the very short flight to Philly in an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan. A portion of the flight was to be handled by the Newcastle Approach Controller in Delaware, which was, fun fact, not equipped with radar. What? (laughs) Yeah. Old aviation. Yeah. And therefore was tracking the plane without visuals and only manually. Wait, how are they doing it manually? Basically, they draw themselves a map. Oh. They kind of get an idea of where the airplane is and where it's going and where the other airplanes are and where they're going and timing and such. They don't deal with very many in this this area. It's just a little portion of Delaware between, between... Baltimore and Philly's airspace. Is it just old? I yeah, mean, this it, is 1963. So it was I old mean... and it didn't handle much traffic. It was mostly just the small amounts of traffic passing through. And as a matter of fact, I don't know the exact timing of 
uh, when they contacted Newcastle Approach and when they contacted Philly, but I'm guessing they were only on Newcastle's uh, frequency for less than two minutes. Oh, okay. They were given instructions by the Newcastle Approach to climb to 5,000 feet and contact the Philadelphia Approach Control at 8.42 p.m. When the crew contacted the Philadelphia Approach, they were given the following Philadelphia weather, now 700 scattered, measured 800 broken, 1,000 overcast, 6 miles visibility with rain shower, altimeter 2945, surface wind is 280 degrees at 20 knots with gusts to 30 knots. And he said, I've got five aircraft that elected to hold until this extreme wind pa- uh, the extreme winds have passed. Do you wish to be cleared for an approach, and would you like to hold until the squall line passes Philadelphia over? So, basically all that to say, clouds were pretty low, winds were high, uh, visibility was decent, and actually altimeter was decent too. And he was just informing them that five aircraft had elected to hold, but he put them in a holding pattern, rather than to try to do crosswinds and storms. As the crew had just taken on additional fuel in Baltimore, this gave them time. They elected to enter a holding pattern like the other five airplanes, of which they advised the, the approach controller. They were then instructed to hold west of the Newcastle VOR, uh, which is just basically a point, uh, a reference point, or a navigation point, on the 270 radial of that VOR. And they were given an expected approach clearance time of 9.10 p.m. This is all still about 8.45 p.m. The crew requested to use two-minute legs in their holding pattern, which was granted. So two-minute legs meaning they would make a turn, fly for two minutes, make a turn, fly for two minutes, make a turn, fly for two minutes. You know, basically they they keep going in circles, but they fly straight lines for two minutes at a time. That makes sense. Just that way you don't keep making your passengers dizzy. Just just fly in circles. You give them the majority of the time they're still flying in straight lines. At 8.50 p.m. and 45 seconds, the crew advised the approach controller that they were ready to begin their approach. They were told to continue holding and that they would be cleared as soon as possible. The crew acknowledged this with, Roger, no hurry, just wanted you to know that we'll accept a clearance. Eight minutes passed while the airplane continued to hold, flying through the clouds and experiencing turbulence. At 8.58 and 56 seconds, a transmission came through on the approach control frequency. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Clipper 214, out of control. Here we go. Which, for reference, Clipper is the call sign for Pan American. Yep. And most people these days know Mayday as a term that just means, literally, this is an emergency. Three Maydays means absolutely an emergency. Seconds later, another transmission came through on the same frequency from the first officer of a National Airlines Flight 16, stating, Clipper 214 is going down in flames. They were able to see the 707 falling in flames in pieces as they were in the same holding pattern, but 1,000 feet higher. The plane crashed at 8.59 p.m. into a an open field east of Elkton, Maryland. The weather in the area of the crash was cloudy and thunderstorms with light rain and lightning. Witnesses on the ground say that they saw the airplane explode in midair and fell to the ground in flames in several large pieces. Of all those on board, all of them perished. Which would happen if it exploded. Yes. It would also happen if it impacted the ground really fast, which it would have also done. So Yes, so the airplane impacted the ground at an angle. The airplane impacted the ground in flames, and it lit the surrounding field on fire. There were nearly 600 pieces of wreckage strewn outside of the main impact area, and they made up a total wreckage area of about 4 miles long and 1 mile wide at a bearing of 225. Which is indicative that it was not intact at impact. Right. I did not mean to rhyme. I apologize. <laughs> and that is it. Yikes. Yeah. So, kind of strange. They were just flying, and then they exploded. No biggie. Boom. Yeah, boom. 
I, I will use boom turns later. Yep. So this investigation was covered not by the NTSB because the NTSB did not exist yet. It was the Civil Aeronautics Board. Board. CAB. 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 So the flight recorder was actually recovered from the crash site with little fire damage, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. But it was crumpled pretty badly. But they were able to reassemble and get data from almost the entire tape. I think it said 95% of it. They were 32 minutes into the flight at this point, and the tape showed that the first 32 minutes were perfectly normal. But then the plane started to make abnormal excursions before descending rapidly to the ground. What does that mean? Abnormal excursions? Turbulence. Oh. Really severe turbulence. Well, not really severe, just turbulence. Sure. But weren't they... They were in turbulence. Yeah. Well, weren't... I mean... For that entire time they were holding, didn't they have turbulence? Most of it, yes. Because that's what happens when you're in a thunderstorm? Yes. Yes. Turbulence. But but then other things happened. But that's literally all they were able to garner from the flight data recorder. So, super useful, right? Most of, uh, actually, ha- what they used initially in this investigation to garner what happened was witness reports and pilot reports. So pilots in the area, using their reports, investigators determined that the turbulence due to the relevant thunderstorms was not strong enough to structurally compromise the plane in any way, as many of the other planes were flying in the exact same area and had no problems. Additionally, based on pilot statements, investigators determined that icing was not a factor, which is pretty indicative based on the fact that it wasn't really snowing. Yes, but I could see why they would want to look into icing. They, I mean, they have to, and they there were yeah. warnings for icing in the area because there's moisture in the air. And they're really high up, so it's really cold. They're high up, and it's December. Yes. <laughs> Let's be honest. But they determined it was not a factor, and that's all they said about it. I don't know how they made that determination, but they said it's not a factor, so we'll move on. Maybe it's because none of the other planes had icing. Probably. Investigators then turned to witnesses, and boy, did they have quite a few of them. A lot. 99 witnesses reported seeing an aircraft or flaming object falling from the sky, and 72 of those witnessed a very key factor in this investigation, which we thought was kind of odd given the time of year, but it must have just been a warm winter. They saw lightning, and seven people specifically saw lightning strike the plane. All 72 said that the ball of fire, aka aircraft, appeared at the same time or immediately after the lightning strike. 23 saw an explosion, and 38 mentioned an explosion at impact. But aren't planes supposed to have some sort of durability when it comes to being struck by lightning? They do now. And, and that was prompted by this incident. Oh, okay. And some, some did then, too. But this one in particular did not. Did not. Oh, that's good. Tragic. So, all in all, lightning was determined to be the cause based solely on that. And, I mean, they weren't wrong. But how exactly is lightning dangerous to a plane? What would cause a plane to go down from a lightning strike specifically? Well, lightning is a very powerful spark, basically. I could get more into the physics, but we'll leave that at that. And it turns out that there is a very flammable, combustible substance on board planes at all times. Fuel. Jet fuel. Yeah. Yeah. Not just fuel. Jet jet fuel. If there is any way that the fuel is compromised... When lightning strikes the plane and it isn't protected, a spark can lead to a, well, boom. A boom. A boom, boom. Boom, boom. So the next step was for the CAB to determine where and how the fuel was compromised. 
Within the wreckage, they found evidence of an in-flight fire on the left wing, specifically the left inboard wing trailing edge. Possible compromise locations in that area of the wing would be the dump chute assembly, the reserve tank transfer tube, and a rear spar crack. Now, for fuel to ignite, it must be vaporized or in an air-fuel mixture, as it were. A container of liquid fuel will not ignite under a spark. Um, Nick was mentioning that he had heard a story that somebody just threw a match into fuel and nothing happened. It wasn't a match, it was a lit cigarette. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Still not a great idea. No, not a good idea. But nothing happened. Um, well, we kind of went over that when we did um, a little bit about Air Fr- the Air France. Yeah. The Concorde. Yeah. If it had been full to the brim, it wouldn't have happened because there was be no way for the... Sloshy slosh. Sloshy slosh to have affected the boomy booms. Yeah. Yeah. A leak in the reserve fuel transfer tube could potentially cause this air fuel mixture, but they couldn't find a way that such a leak would lead to a fire that reached further in the plane like it actually did. It This fire reached all the way to other fuel tanks on the other side of the plane. All the way to the far wing, the other far wing. Yeah, so, I'd have a hard time figuring that out too. So they nixed that one. It was not the transfer tube. But there was evident damage that the spark started in the number one reserve tank on the left side of the plane. Investigators found evidence of subsequent explosions in the center and right reserve tanks, though they don't know the exact sequence or timing given uh, the wreckage they had to work with. It's assumed that after the left reserve tank exploded, it compromised the other tanks and the fire spread, causing more explosions. Kind of a no-duh? Yeah. Now here's the uh, kind of interesting bit. Quote, physical evidence failed to disclose the precise mechanism of ignition which triggered the explosion in the left reserve tank, end quote. Basically, they know the plane was struck by lightning, and they know there was an explosion in the number one reserve tank, but they have no idea how the lightning actually sparked the explosion. Well, and they wouldn't, because there was no way for them to know without recreating it exactly, and that's almost impossible. Yep. Yeah. There was no lightning damage on the skin of the wing in that area around the fuel tank or the vent system. They focused much of their investigation on the physics of lightning itself and how it might have caused a spark without leaving a mark, which I'm not really going to get into unless you really want me to. But basically, despite all of their research that they spent, they couldn't determine exactly how the fuel got sparked. They know it did. They know where. They don't know how. There's so many different factors that could make that spark. They used all of their resources that they had at the time regarding lightning and focused on places that could have been compromised, such as the fuel tank's bonding, fuel tank access plates, filler cap assemblies, fuel vent outlets, and the tank wall surfaces. Now, this doesn't mean that lightning didn't cause the spark, but they did not have the resources at the time to determine one way or the other. And that's what I got. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay. So back into it. Backity back. Do you want to do the probable cause? Because there are no findings. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I this you report. Said there was no recommendation. No, there are six recommendations and no, no findings. findings. Okay. There are no findings in this report because the CAV produced it, and it was a 
a shorter report at 22 pages. It was one of the shortest ones we've ever had, actually. But that said, they were very detailed in the story. I didn't dive into as many of those things because they talk all about exactly which VORs the airplane traveled through. A lot of fluff. Things that just don't matter for the story. It gave the whole route from San Juan to Baltimore and Baltimore to Philly, and it just was unnecessary. A lot of the analysis section was like, here's how lightning works. I'm like, I think we all pretty much get it. It's electricity. In the air. <laughs> that can potentially go boomy boom. Yeah. If you have further questions on this, email us. I'll give you the whole spiel. And a bunch of resources to back it up. I'm just... Y'all, went, y'all know what lightning is. I'm not doubting your intelligence. So, moving on. Probable cause. The board determines the probable cause of this accident was lightning-induced ignition of the fuel-air mixture in the number one reserve fuel tank with resultant explosive disintegration of the left outer wing and loss of control. Also, real quick, before you go to recommendations, Uh this happened way, 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 way far in the future after this, but if you want to know more about fuel igniting via vapors, look up something on uh, TWA 800, because that's kind of what happened with... uh, That too. That too. It's... We won't get into the conspiracy because that just makes me angry, but <laughs> the actual like science behind what happened has to do with vapor and gas mixture hot ignited. Hot. Yeah. yeah. And turns out lightning is hot at hot. Yes. Like super hot. Okay. So recommendations. So there was only six recommendations. All of them were, rel- rel- were pretty valid though. Uh, they recommended installing static discharge wicks on turbine powered aircraft not currently equipped with them. Which happened? Yes. So static wicks are now commonplace. We'll get into in a minute things in aviation that have changed the way that that lightning strikes airplanes. Because believe me, it does happen. A lot. They say every airplane gets struck by lightning once a year. That's crazy. I didn't know it was that much. Uh Uh-huh. Every airliner supposedly gets struck by lightning at least once a year. I would hate to be on a flight that had to have that happen, though. On average. Now that statistic... Yeah, I have a story. Ooh, ooh, stories. Okay, finish, because I want to hear the story. Let's finish the recommendations. They recommended reevaluating problems associated with incorporation of flame arresters in fuel tank vent outlets as the protection against fuel tank explosions from static discharge ignite, uh, ignited the fuel air mixture at the fuel tank vent outlets can be provided by flame arresters having sufficient depth. Okay. What? That one was really <laughs> confusing, but basically there is a fail safe. There's a vent for the fuel tank, and that vent has a fuel-air mixture that is venting out of it. And the theory is that that vent can prevent... It's sparking, going hot, boom. Yes, it going boom. Because it's removing the vapors. That's the idea. Gotcha. Now, they're just saying that that vent needs to reach further into the tank in order to vent more of the vapors. Now, I'm not sure about that. There's a few things that come with that. I think it's impossible to get rid of all the vapors. There, yeah, I think there's a few more things that go with that. And it turns out so did they. Because their third recommendation, they recommend a possible alternate to the last recommendation be uh, that may be considered is to render the mixture emitting from the vent outlet non-ignitable by the introduction of uh, air into the vent tube. So in other words, it wouldn't, more air in. it wouldn't just be a vent out. There would literally be a flow through of air that would actually cause that would bring more air into the mixture and reduce the fuel vapors got it in the mixture so not that it's super relevant now but was that implemented that i don't know but things are very different now yeah that's why i said it wasn't super relevant now is we'll get into it but 
it's not useful now because there generally is no air in fuel tanks now. Right. They are very sealed. They are vacuums. Essentially. (laughs) So this one was read more of as an opinion, which was interesting. They said specifically, we believe the surge tanks located just outboard of the reserve tanks should be either thickened or have a thick air pocket. So in other words, the walls around the tanks they believe should be thickened. This was done. Fuel tank, the the walls around the outside of fuel tanks are now thicker to prevent them from getting pierced. Yeah, because if they get pierced, it can cause a real big problem. It causes a lot of problems. Um, There is a more recent flight in 2008 where a uh, fuel tank got pierced and it caused a fire on the ground after the plane landed. Yeah. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, we'll do that one someday. We will cover that one someday Um, because I like that one. one. Real quick question that Mm -hmm. may or may not have anything to do with this. But if you, do you know if you like rub against jet fuel, will it ignite? It will not. Okay. It is a very difficult to ignite fluid, actually. Unless it's vaporized. Unless it's vaporized. Contrary to it being named fuel. Popular belief, yeah. You know, you'd think it's it's fuel. It it wants to go boom. But actually, not necessarily. I was just thinking, because my mom, when she was a child, one of her siblings spilled whale oil on the floor and tried cleaning it up mm-hmm. using friction, and it caused a fire and burned their house oh, down. Yeah. So no. I just wanted to make sure that that wasn't a, you know, a case Mm-mm, nope, with this, jet fuel. This won't do that. At least not to my knowledge. If that will do that, and it has happened to somebody, please let me know. But this that is not something I have ever heard of. Not with not with jet fuel. That is really that would that would be out of the norm for jet fuel, as far as I understand it. All I know about jet fuel is it doesn't smell great. Because Nick no. used to come home smelling like it. Uh huh. I don't miss those days. That and the mix of hundred low lead, man. That that stuff was nasty. They recommended that only jet A be used commercially. Vapor flammability temperature charts show that it is much less of, that much less of operations would occur in the flammability range compared to jet B fuel. So jet B fuel, actually, when I looked into it a little bit, goes by a different name these days. However, it is not common, and all commercial aviation does use jet A now. They don't mix anymore. So the reason that this recommendation come up, came up is really because they're saying that. The vapors, while it would ignite, whether it be Jet A or Jet B, uh, Jet A ignites between 110 degrees Fahrenheit and 150 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's lower for Jet B? Jet B will ignite, the vapors are willing to ignite between 50 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a big difference. It is a big difference. Now, I do want to clarify that the fact that they had mixed fuel was not a factor in this incident. No, it it is specifically not. The only reason they recommended this is because the Jet B was, those vapors were what ignited, and they said, you know, basically as an extra failsafe, we should probably stick to one type of fuel, and Jet A is just safer. Yes, but regardless of what fuel was in the plane, this still would have happened. Yes, because it would have ignited either the Jet A or the Jet B. Because, as I said before, lightning is hot at hot. Right. But now the goal is to eliminate vapors. Final recommendation. They recommended that every effort be expanded to arrive at a practical means by which flammable air-vapor mixtures are eliminated from the fuel tanks altogether. That's where we'll get into this. Because in aviation these days, you know, back back then, most of the time fueling happened through literally just a cap. They'd get up on a ladder twist the cap off the top, and fuel it just like your car. It's an open tank. 
the vapors can flow out of it. They don't pour... do that anymore. Uh-uh. Well, now... they do it on general aviation planes. Yes, but nowadays... Well, I mean like big commercial airliners. Correct. Right, right. Nowadays, in commercial airliners, it's very different. They have very sealed tanks that don't promote air being in the tank. So they're not completely free of air, but they are like so little, there's so little air that stays in those tanks compared to the amount of fuel that it, it wouldn't ignite. Those vapors wouldn't have the right air fuel mixture to ignite. And so the, they fuel them from the bottoms of the wings generally now. And on those underside, they literally use a like pop in twist lock mechanism. They're kind of cool if you ever see them. It is. It is actually pretty cool. And those those twist lock create a seal on that that tank for the fuel to flow in to prevent air from going into the tank as well. So it's essentially a vacuum with fuel in it. And this made it so much safer. Absolutely, hands down. So that's one of the things that made that would prevent an incident like this again. And there are a few other incidences where large airliners were destroyed because of lightning. Famously, Lanza 508. Yes. But that said, this wouldn't happen anymore, and it hasn't happened in a very, very, very long time. Not to commercial aviation. This does happen to smaller airplanes every once in a while, and it is deadly. But in commercial aviation and airlines, this doesn't happen anymore. And I have a story to go along with this. Story, story, story. Tell your story. Yeah. So it's pretty simple, but I've been on an airplane that's been struck by lightning before, so I can tell you exactly what happens. And uh, I was in a 767. We were flying through a cloud, didn't really think much about it. We were actually just below the cloud, and I honestly would have never guessed that we would get hit by lightning where and when we were. But we were flying just below the cloud, and all of a sudden, all the windows around the, the entire cabin went just bright purple for... Not even a quarter of a second. I mean, if you had blinked, totally would have missed it. But they went like that. I mean, purple. And you just hear this little thump through the cabin. That's it. I mean, that that's all you experience. But nothing else happened. The airplane didn't jolt. You don't, you know, there's no interruption in electricity or engine power. Nothing. Because they're so safe. And... The captain even came on and was like, just so you know, that was a bolt of lightning. We're fine. It happens every day, you know, and it does. So it's it's commonplace and it's nice of him that he gave out the warning, but really or that he gave out the the message. But it really didn't matter because most people probably had no clue what happened. I knew what happened as soon as that as soon as I heard the thud and everything went purple. But it was pretty cool. And usually the reason that that doesn't happen these days is because on there, so you have the static wicks now on airplanes, but also the the airplane is essentially a Faraday cage. Yeah. So underneath the paint on all the planes is a wire mesh. Basically, it's the same concept kind of as the as the screen on your microwave, um, where it allows the thing, the dangerous thing in that case, a microwave, but in this case, lightning to go around everything else and spit out the other end right so you're completely safe inside the cage yeah there's usually a a current driven cable running from one end of the airplane to the other to prevent this from attacking any other part of the airplane and it starts with the current strips i have to look it up on the nose of the airplane these little strips are literally if you look at the nose on the nose cone of the airplane there are these little tiny strips that go around the outside 
and and they go toward from front to rear of the the of the nose cone, and those little strips are actually intended to attract lightning because it's much more ideal for it to strike either the nose or the tail, yeah, rather than some random spot on the fuselage. It's much in the same way that when so lightning was notoriously killing people and destroying people's houses back in the day. And as we started to figure out how currents work and electricity, we figured out that you can actually control it. You can direct it. And so uh, people started getting lightning rods for their homes because brick homes were getting literally destroyed by lightning. I mean, they would just hit the house and that little bolt of lightning would just blow the house apart. I mean, it, it really did. And it, and it, it did so much damage that, you know, people people were nervous to live in those kinds of houses. They would make houses out of basically anything else. And so when they figured out that you can direct a current, they started putting up uh, these lightning rods on top of houses. They look like, you know, old-fashioned antennas like we know it today. And these lightning rods literally go from the highest point on the house all the way into the ground. Because that's where lightning wants to go. It di- and it diffuses it. So it directs it away from, from yeah. away from the house. It collects it above the house and delivers it to the ground without ever having touched the house. Same way in an airplane, those those strips, as well as usually some points, some static wicks at the top of the tail, will collect the lightning, pass it through the airplane, and to the ground below it. So it whether makes... the airplane is flying or not, there's plenty of videos and photos out there. Go yeah. look it up. It's pretty impressive. The airplane just keeps flying. It doesn't even look like anything happened. Basically, they're glorified lightning rods on either end of the plane, and they direct it such that it enters one end of the plane, takes the lightning all the way to the other end of the plane, and that goes to the ground. Yeah, so you're grounding the airplane without it affecting anything at all. And that is implemented on anything that is a transport airplane. And so all transport airplanes are generally safe from this. Now, that's not said that damage doesn't happen from lightning, but it won't be catastrophic. Not in the slightest. Generally, what happens is the nose cone gets a small amount of damage, but the nose cone is a very repairable or replaceable part. It matters very little that the, the nose cone would have any sort of small damage to it. Sometimes chunks of paint fall off. Sometimes uh, a, you know, a, a chunk of the nose cone will come off around a rivet, things like that. But Most a, commonly. Most commonly, there's a about a pencil width hole in the nose cone where the the lightning passed through and it's so small that literally just when they're on the ground they just cover you know, it with the, speed tape. the the pilots just squawk it they cover it with speed tape until it can get to an actual maintenance facility and then they just patch it and it flies again it doesn't it's not an it's airworthiness not, issue no it's not catastrophic you can still fly you literally throw a piece of glorified duct tape on it and you're good to go yes so it doesn't affect airplanes the way it used to. Not at all. This would never happen again. And thankfully, you know, we, we learned from things like this because this was pretty catastrophic. 81 people died in this incident, and that's that's enough, especially at the time where, like, you know, that perpetuates the fear of, of flying, flying for people, especially when you're flying through a thunderstorm. People were like, why, why would you do this if it's dangerous to the airplane? And there were already things in place, like the, the fuel vent arresters. Uh, flame arresters that were in place that were supposed to try to mediate things like this but didn't work not as effectively as we have now basically we're trying to convince you like look at all these things this will never happen again Mm -hmm. look at all these things and it does good yeah but also some other things have changed too they don't if you're in a holding pattern for a thunderstorm they try to put you away from the thunderstorm now you're not going to be flying through the clouds through the thunderstorm itself 
while you're waiting for ground winds to go down. It's not said that you wouldn't fly through a thunderstorm period, but the likelihood is as low as possible. They really try to avoid thunderstorms as much as is possible. When the, what was it, the flyover last week? There was a storm out to the south of us. Mm -hmm. We were scared that it would cause them to not do the flyover because they had to go all the way from where they were around the state to Nevada. So, yeah. and they had to go down by the springs, which is south of where we are. Right, and they had to go by the storm. So we were worried that because of the storm, they wouldn't make the trip. That wasn't the case. They did do the flyover. Yep. But they always try to make sure that planes stay out of the way of thunderstorms because it can cause not only lightning, but really bad turbulence and stuff like that, too. So if you've ever gone through a storm, like we went through a snowstorm coming back from what? Oh, Baltimore? Man. Was it Baltimore? No, no we were Seattle. from back, oh, back Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. We went through a snowstorm over the mountains here and it was rough. I mean, that was the worst turbulence, turbulence I've experienced. Yeah. Ever. So. And that it was, was really bad. Yeah. That was some of the worst experience, turbulence I've ever experienced. Now, granted, I've been in much worse in smaller oh, airplanes, gosh. but still, I mean, that was, yeah, for, for, you know, a sizable airliner, that was pretty, pretty rough. There but, are people that got angry about it, too. I was like, you are you dead? <laughs> You're fine. But in any case, the industry does its best to not needlessly put you in a thunderstorm. Right. Now, you can go through a thunderstorm safely, but they'll avoid it if they can. And we'll cover additional flights where pilots maybe didn't do that. Yeah. Like, smart people. Yeah. Where they relied on... Um, updated technology in the plane and that may have been a false reading type thing so i mean i could name an incident that has happened recently where an airplane went through a storm and they oh, were yeah, yeah 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 they were fine but uh basically it was a it was a, a flight i don't remember where it was coming from but i think it was supposed to i think it was on its way to denver and as they were nearing denver they you know they were they were flying over kansas and all of a sudden, they they didn't make an emergency call, but they they basically said they, they made a pan call, which is panic. Um, and so they landed in Denver, and everybody on the ground was completely bewildered by the sight they saw. It was an A320, and this was only, I don't know, not even 10 years ago. Not even, oh, I know which one you're talking about. Not even about. six, seven years ago, I think. This was an A320, and when they landed, what was seen was all of the windshields were completely Shattered. shattered. They had no And the visuals. nose cone was, like, gone. The nose cone was pitted, completely pitted all the way through. I mean, there was holes through it, and it was essentially gone. And the people on the ground were so astonished that this pilot managed to land this airplane. And initially, for the first couple of days, he was hailed as a hero. The whole flight crew was hailed as a hero. And it's not to say that they weren't. And I'm not going to go criticize him, because this was a... They landed an airplane... In an amazingly tough situation. Now, granted, the A320 is a very smart airplane, and it managed to do, you know, it can manage to do almost everything on its own without needing any visuals. So they were pretty lucky. But but what had happened was they were flying over Kansas, and they flew through a thunderstorm over Kansas. With and this was, hail. This was at night with severe hail. And that hail destroyed the whole front end of that airplane. And it it's really is amazing that that airplane managed to keep power and they made it all the way to Denver, but regardless, you know, they everybody's like, wow, they went through this 
thunderstorm and more than likely what happened i haven't read into it on this one but more than likely they got a blind spot on their radar and they didn't know they were flying into the middle of it but on that night you know it when it came out that you know they shouldn't have been where they were that's when people kind of got angry and i don't think that's necessarily the right way to be about it because they didn't put themselves them there on purpose well so here's what i read though uh-huh. be- before you go on because uh-huh. i know what you're talking about yeah. and i did read up on it okay. when it came out yeah this was several years ago mm-hmm. it was it was when i was in college so it wasn't within the last five years yeah okay but basically what happened was is he flew through he landed everyone was like oh my gosh that's amazing turns out that and i don't know if he ignored tower Mm-hmm. Or if he didn't hear or whatever, every mm-hmm. other plane that was supposed to come through that way yeah. got rerouted around. There was, and they decided to go through. There was an image that came out of a radar, the radar tracks of all the airplanes flying through the area at the time. Yep. And every single airplane went either north or south of this thunderstorm around, and then re- reconnected on the route. And there was one, one airplane that flew right through the middle. And it was that one. And it could have gotten a blind... It's called a blind spot, where they think it's okay, and then it gets worse <laughs> as you keep going. Yeah, well, and, and their worse. radar just doesn't see it. It creates, yeah. like, this black hole on their radar. And they think it's fine, but it's it's not fine. Yeah. So that could have happened, or they just decided that it wasn't as bad of a storm, so they went through it, or whatever. But they were the only plane that decided to go straight through the storm instead of around the storm. And it's rare. It is. It is. I mean, but it also goes to show that the airplane is so safe, even going through situations like that, that they landed, nobody yep. was hurt, everything was fine. I would be terrified. The though. airplane, <laughs> the airplane was very destroyed, but the airplane survived and landed and got everybody the ground safe. And I mean, that's what more can you really ask for in the Honestly, airplane? I don't think he was a hero per se, but at least they <laughs> landed it fine i mean they can be because they managed to land that airplane even though they went through a horrible experience that's like when you're driving on the road you know Mm -hmm. and you're like "Eh, it's not gonna snow that bad it's gonna be fine and it turns out to be like a blizzard and you're like uh i made (laughs) a mistake (laughs) and then you drive and you're like oh okay the worst is when get me home (laughs) the worst is like what happened recently like when when i drove our our new little two-wheel drive car to work and in the morning just a little bit of sprinkly rain. Nothing had happened. It was all the roads were fine. <laughs> it was and like then a blizzard. Yeah. And then it blizzarded while I, blizzarded while I was at work. So then I had to drive the little two wheel drive car home. <laughs> and you I went didn't and got choice. my CRV. Yeah, instead. So that was yeah. There's things like that happen. But you know, whatever. It's okay. I've so, yeah. definitely been in that before. So it's rough. It's, yeah. If you've ever done that in a car, you question. Yeah. Just imagine doing that in an airplane. <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah. But you're way safer doing it in an airplane, in yep. all actuality. Yep. Because it's automated. And mostly. because of this event, actually. Yep. So. And I'm glad we finally covered a, a weather or a lightning one. This is definitely a, a different kind of incident than our normal. And, yeah. And luckily, this is not common enough where this would probably be a common uh, occurrence on our podcast. But cool anyways. I'm yeah. glad we got to do something different. And we wanted to educate everyone about... What happens when the plane gets struck by lightning? Mm-hmm. Because it's you know, a frightening thing to look at and think about, but it's actually not frightening at all. The airplane is just fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So that was Pan Am 214. Thanks for listening and continuing to listen. Those of you who continue to listen, thank you. <laughs> Even very while much. you're quarantined. Because or you're listening to this 
years later. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, if you're listening to it years later, thank you, too. Because, you know, anything helps. <laughs> stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay home if you can. I know things are starting to open up. At least here they're starting to open up. Other places in the country, that's not true. Mm-hmm. But here in Colorado, some things are starting to open up. Please be smart about where you go. Please be smart about who you're around. This whole pandemic thing is still going on. People are still sick. Please be careful. Take precautions. The whole shebang. Exactly. Yep. We're all tired of hearing about it, but still be safe. Yes. And just we wish, be safe. We wish you well. Yep. Have a great week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.